We've been, uh, I've been on a, on a roll, on a series here, and uh, really working on getting us toward hopefully the, uh, the encouragement that you need to dive into active contemplative practice, because that's where it's all at. You know, nothing really changes until we do something, until we fall into the practice. And so we've been talking about following Jesus' way. But the point I want to make this morning is that following Jesus' way is different than following Jesus. That's a kind of a fine point to make, but I want to, I want to make it as clearly as I can. Following Jesus' way is different than just following Jesus. Now, the earliest followers of Jesus understood this difference because they called themselves Talmidi Orha in their language, which means followers of the way. Not followers of Jesus, you know, followers of the way. Certainly not Christians. That was the name that was given by Greeks later on. But followers of the way. Because they understood that following Jesus can't be passive. It can't be doctrinal. It can't be intellectual. It can't be theological. It can't be something that we carry around in our minds. And if we're just following Jesus... There are different ways that we could do that. We can do it doctrinally. We can do it intellectually. Or we can simply do it behaviorally, right? We can just obey the rules, obey the laws that have been handed down by the church, handed down by in Jesus' guidelines for living in kingdom, and call them laws, call them rules, call them commandments. Even though the Bible is translated that way, that's not really the way they are handed down. Jesus was saying, if you live this way, something is going to happen to you. If you live as I am living, I am this way. I am the only way to the Father, but you need to live it. It doesn't vicariously rub off on you from me. Following Jesus' way, actually following the way of Jesus, the way of living life, changes everything. Actually experiencing what Jesus experienced what do we think he was doing out there in the wilderness for those symbolic 40 days and 40 nights? Because I guarantee it was a lot longer time than that. He was experiencing what he needed to experience to come back and say with absolute authority that I and the Father are one, walking in the power of the Spirit that just blew everyone's minds. You know, when he came back to his hometown of Nazareth and preached for the first time and taught for the first time in the synagogue, and everybody was abuzz. Isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? What the heck? What's going on here? Who is this guy? Something had absolutely changed. When Moses came down from the mountain, his hair was whitened. You all remember Charlton Heston? Come on. Come on now. White hair. Something happened. It changed him. Jesus is saying, you need to do what I am doing. And if you really are following my ways, you will do the things that I am doing and even greater things than these, John 14. And so we need to experience what Jesus experienced if we are going to go where Jesus went. If we are going to enter kingdom, it can't be out of a book. It can't be intellectually. Even if that book is the Bible, if all we're doing is reading it, it's not going to take us where Jesus is trying to take us. We need to actually go through the shape of of the journey that Jesus went through. Do the things that he did. If we want to arrive at, actually become kingdom. Kingdom isn't really something we enter. Kingdom is something that we become. Jesus said, you know, never disallow these children to come to me. 
because such as these are kingdom. They haven't entered kingdom. They are kingdom. Yes, other places we talk about entering kingdom. That's just an idiomatic expression. What Jesus is really talking about is becoming something that we weren't before, to become fully active in this way of following Jesus, taking part in the emptying out of the self. That is what Jesus' life is all about. From his incarnation, the kenosis, the emptying, to the emptying he did in the wilderness. When he said to pick up your cross daily and follow me, that is to daily empty yourself out. He said, unless this seed falls to the ground and dies, it can't fulfill its purpose as a plant. The shape that it was has to fade and go away, has to crack open and cease to exist so that something else can take its place. Who we think we are is that shell of that seed. If we're not willing to let that crack open and die, then we are not taking up our cross, and we aren't doing what Jesus is talking about. And the problem with all that is, is that it feels like death. Why do you think he used the cross as one of the great metaphors? When he was talking to his people, take up your cross daily and follow me. Being willing to risk the loss of self that we have spent so long building up, curated so diligently, protected the illusion of ourself, to risk that loss, to experience the disturbance, to experience the trauma of going through that loss like any other. We grieve it. When you are going through true spiritual formation, when you're following Jesus' way, you have to go through the grief of losing who you thought you were. It's like losing a person. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to actually follow Jesus' way? Very different. And it's the only way to experience God's love. The only way to experience the essence of God, which is love. Jesus said it's the only way to the Father. Are we willing to kill our illusions of power and certainty that we have built up in our lives so that we can truly rest in God? We don't rest in God if we're still defending ourselves. We're busy defending ourselves. There's no rest in that. Augustine said, My heart is restless until it rests in thee. That only happens when we have given up our defenses and we really do lay down. Only a humble person can do this. A person who has become willing to submit to a powder power greater than self, to surrender, to undefend, to lay down defenses, to admit powerlessness, to admit vulnerability, to admit dependence, that Anavim spirit we were talking about. Only this person, only such a person, Jesus calls them poor in spirit, that Hebraism, that that. Aramaic turn of phrase that we don't understand anymore, which simply means someone who is, has an attitude of poverty, even if they're rich. Someone who has learned to rely on God rather than on self and rather than and everything that has been accumulated and accrued in life to just rest in God. Only such a person can experience a love that is not dependent on performance, not dependent on accomplishment, Nothing that we have earned, of course, in any way, shape, or form. A love that is completely degreeless. Only a person who has entered this state would even be willing to look at such a love as being something desirable. 
But secondly, to be able to experience it flowing through. It takes a complete turn. And so maybe the question is, how do you know if you're getting there? How do you know? How do you know that you're actually on the way of Jesus, on this path that he's talking about? What changes is it making in you? I ran across an article that, uh, I don't know, sometimes you just see the, the title and it, it attracts you. And I have no idea what to expect or that I certainly that I'd be including it here this morning. But it just struck me as being such a great rendition of the change that starts to take place. And it's called The Habits of Satisfied People. It's not written in, in anything, I think it was the New York Times or something, it's not written religiously or spiritually, but The Habits of Satisfied People. And I put some excerpts of what I'm going to read in your, in your uh, inserts today. And I'll let you know when I'm hitting that part so you can read along. Maybe that'll help lock it in. But she writes, Every year we get an opportunity to marvel at nature's lesson in letting go and lamenting. The trees do it with such ease and elegance. But I'm a bit ashamed to admit that as a tree enthusiast, this is the first year I've given thought as to why exactly do trees let go of their leaves? Ever thought about that? Why do trees drop their leaves in the winter? Leaves are very fragile. They're also big energy sucks. All right? The tree spends a lot of time protecting their little leaf organs, and it's basically their full-time job. Then, the old familiar cycle of death and renewal. Dim light and dreary days begin, and the tree's priorities change. The tree's priorities change. Leaves are a liability when trees need to conserve resources during the winter, so off they go. And this part's in your flyer. Trees let go of their leaves in order to protect what's most important, their essence. They also let go in order to protect their vitality for new growth in spring. This has got me thinking, what am I protecting? I protect many parts of my life that I love and care about, but I also needlessly protect things that are ready to be let go. As part of my annual tree phase, I like to think that I'm going through the steps of shedding my own leaves, the things I had been tightly protecting. And a question has come up frequently. What do I admire most right now? And these days, to the surprise of a more ambitious former version of myself, I greatly admire people who are satisfied with their lives. Satisfied with their lives. They are people who radiate a calm peace wherever they are. They have the awareness to enjoy the season they're in. They routinely express gratitude for the charmed years and integrate the challenging ones. I like hearing that people like their lives. The most satisfied of these people have been through hardships, some of them unspeakably hard, and yet they've managed to incorporate, incorporate them like a tree does, letting the rings of all their experiences push them to grow stronger and wider. When I look to the tree cycles, I wonder if being satisfied with your life is about what you choose to protect. It's not so much what happens to you or what you achieve, in parentheses, snore, <laughs> but what you're actively nurturing and what you let go in the process. I see deeply satisfied 
peaceful people protect their days. They respect their time enough to disengage from fruitless arguments and cruel feedback. They protect their spirit. They generously spread their spirit across love, creativity, dreams, and the comfortably mundane. They protect their people. They keep their circle nourished and vibrant, and they keep it small if they must. And they protect their path. They pay loving attention to the path they're on. They're increasingly uninterested in the destination because the path astonishes them. I love that line. Have you noticed how peaceful and satisfied trees look? (laughs) They carefully choose what to protect. I don't need to protect rotted memories anymore, like decaying leaves at the end of summer. I can let them go and seal the wound. Tis the season to protect the interior. See, this is all second half of life stuff. For those of you who have been following us and following upward or know about the first and second half of life. In the first half of life, you protect the exterior. You protect the leaves. In the second half of life, you realize that everything you need is already here. It's in the interior. You must protect that. That means that much less energy, at least mental energy, needs to go to the leaves, to the exterior, so that you can really focus on what's going on inside. Even as you continue to tend to the leaves, we don't have the option not to do that as long as we're breathing, but to find that balance that we're always talking about between the interior and the exterior, between what is seen out there, the leaves, and what is unseen, but is the greater part. The question to ask yourself, is your life defined, is your life defined by what is missing or what is already here? That's the question to ask to find out whether you're satisfied with your life. How much time do you spend thinking about always what is missing? And how much time do you spend just enjoying, celebrating, being present to what is here in this moment, right here and right now? Who do you know? Someone in your life, someone you've met. Do you know anyone at all that seems satisfied with their lives. It's not going to be the majority. At least not the ones that I've met. And think about it. Every single ad in commercial that you see on television, on, in radio, or anywhere else is betting that you're not satisfied with your life, right? Because they want to tap into that desire. They want to tap in to that unsettledness that will allow them to separate you from your money. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be working for change. Don't mistake satisfaction the way we're talking about it. Don't mistake accepting life as life presents as we're talking about it. With not working for change, not without an ability to recognize what still needs fixing, what still needs improving, what is wrong in life, both our personal lives and those around us, in our family, in our communities, But at any point, as we're working along this path to change, take a snapshot. You're working hard. You're pushing toward the goal. You're pushing toward the outcome that you know you want. But take a snapshot and see if you're smiling at the moment that you're in. See if you still have that ability to see that this moment is still enough. This moment is still perfect if I'm present to it and in it 
even as this moment is contributing to the path to the change that we are seeking. In other words, can we balance the now and the not yet? This is the genius of the Hebrew scribes who wrote our scriptures. To use the Hebrew bride as that central metaphor that just runs throughout both Old and New Testaments, the Gospels all the way to Revelation. That Hebrew bride who needed to do exactly that, to balance the now, the family that she is in, that she has only known her entire life, with the not yet of her husband, her groom, coming to pick her up at any moment in the middle of the night at the blow of the trumpet to change everything about her life, to fulfill her life, but at the expense of leaving the family that she knows, to balance the now and the not yet, to work for change, to anticipate the change, but not ever let it distract from any snapshot of your moment here and now. This is what we're talking about. And as I said, this author is apparently coming from a secular point of view. But how do we actually become satisfied? How does that work? How do we graduate from all the worries and all the cares that every one of us has, all the things that are left undone, all the things that we need to do, and all the fears, especially as the world becomes more and more fearsome, how are we supposed to still be satisfied with our lives? How does that exactly work? How do we become unattached to outcomes, or at least less attached to outcomes, fully invested in now? How do we begin to see people and circumstances as enough right here and right now? Is it only the elderly? It's only when you get to that point in life where life has stripped away everything <laughs> that, that you had and everything that you worked for so much that whatever is left must be blessed? Is that the way that works? Do we have to wait for life to do that work for us? Is there no other way for us to become satisfied? I'm convinced that anyone you meet who is satisfied with their life is on Jesus' way. Whether they know it or not, they're doing it. First of all, they've suffered. They had to have suffered. The way she puts it is they've endured hardships, sometimes unspeakably hard hardships. But the suffering is guaranteed. It is part and parcel to becoming someone who is satisfied. Rohr has talked about that great suffering and great love are the two paths to transformation because they're the only powers in life powerful enough to strip away the leaves, to strip away the non-essentials, to strip away the illusions that we have built up in our need for some kind of certainty, some kind of control, perceived control. These people have suffered and they've come out on the other side, literally have been resurrected on the other side of their grief, on the other side of their loss, whatever it happened to be. They came out of the tomb as Jesus did. They came out of the big fish the way Jonah did. They came out of the ark the way Noah did. They came out of the cave the way Elijah did. But those stories that have this same shape is a shape that we need to engage. And anyone who has gotten to the place of satisfaction in life, who can take that snapshot at any point, as they're even working really hard for change and still smiling, has gone through the shape of that journey. They have been able and learned to balance now and not yet. Interior and exterior. Joy and suffering. All of these bits and pieces. And they've been changed by that experience. They have 
grown a capacity to love what is right in front of them and not just chase what's in their heads. This is Jesus' way. This is how it works. This is what he's telling us. This paschal mystery of descent and then ascent, the hero's journey that always begins with a wounding, the rite of passage. Now this may be sticking in your craw a little bit because we're so used to engaging Jesus religiously, doctrinally, theologically. But if you really read Jesus with a fresh eye, you'll see that Jesus is really none of those. He is intensely practical. He's giving us a way of life that will give us an experience. It'll give us the suffering too, but it'll give us the experience that will drive us into the arms of the Father's love in a way that we can finally accept, in a way that we can finally embrace. He knows that we need to experience God first. Whatever religion you want to wrap around that, more or less, is up to him. He doesn't try to convert the Roman centurion. He just says he's never seen faith like this in all of Israel. He doesn't try to convert the Samaritan woman to Judaism. He just talks to her and tells her about a new way of living her life and a new way of experiencing her moments that would change everything. Jesus says, you will know the tree by the fruit. The fruit here is the satisfaction with your life, with your moments. To accept life on life's terms, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, whatever life presents, to be able to accept it as it is and still live with hope and gratitude, that's the definition of a person who is satisfied with life. That's the fruit of this tree. In other words, satisfied people have had a mystical experience of life. Now, they may never have thought of it that way. You still may not like that word. I don't know. They certainly wouldn't express it that way, necessarily. But what they have confronted is what Carl Jaspers calls a limit experience. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before but it means to experience the limits of what you can do, to, to have been brought to the, right to the precipice, the limit of everything that you know and everything that you know how to do and everything that makes you feel secure and in control, to be brought to the limit of all of that. That nothing that you know how to do is going to fix this. Nothing that you know how to do is going to make this right. You're at the precipice. You're experiencing something that cannot be overcome it can only be endured. That's a limit experience. And when you have experienced that in life, whatever it happens to be, if you come through that, you are a changed person because you realize you can't do this on your own power. You can't do this under your own steam. You have to admit that you are powerless in this area. But it doesn't mean that you die. It doesn't mean that you stop. You can still persevere. That there is a power greater than yourself that actually does come. That changes you from the inside out as you move through this. It brings you to the end of yourself, confronts your powerless and your vulnerability, and it pulls back the curtain of the illusions that we can somehow do this under our own steam under our own beliefs, under our own rational processes, whatever it happens to be. 
Maybe it's the death of a loved one. How do you fix that? How do you make that right? You know, the horror stories of Christians trying to make it right verbally with another person at a memorial service and saying the most inane and hurtful things, trying to make something right that can't be made right. It can only be endured. Illness. Look at Nina right now. How's she supposed to fix that? Well, she's working on it. But in the meantime, she's had to have a moment. It's a limit experience for her. She needs to endure this and see what the outcome may be. We all have to do this with her. How helpless do I feel right now for her? I can't do anything to make it any better. I can only continue to be her friend. Natural disasters, wars, abuse, even simply unrequited love. How does that change you? To love someone with your whole heart and not have it returned? To be rejected, neglected, abandoned? How does that change you? It takes us to that precipice. It takes us to that moment of change if we allow it to. Yeah, we can retreat back into our fortress and we can live as cosmic victims for as long as we want to, and people do. But to push through, to endure what can't be overcome, changes you. Can we accept these experiences as they are Can we see them, that these experiences and Jesus' way take us to this mystical place? If we can't, then we're going to need to wait until old age when life finally strips everything away from us anyway. Ultimately, death will do the job if nothing else does. I remember meeting uh, Thomas Keating. And uh, we got on the subject, I don't know how, and Thomas said, you know, I have a lot of hope that things happen during the dying process because I don't know when they'd happen otherwise. You know, do we really have to wait for the dying process, that kind of limit experience before we're finally willing to take this posture, to realize that there are certain things that we can't overcome on our own, but by enduring them, they change us. By moving through them, they change us. That's a mystical experience. We'll define that in a second. If we can't accept them as mystical, we'll need for life to do the work for us. But if we can, if we can start to engage Jesus' way as it really is, stripped of its religion and doctrine and theology, but the practical way of experiencing God, then we can actually engage in this stripping down process. We can actually engage in losing everything that blocks us. And we can gear our spiritual formation to a structured and disciplined practice of contemplation. Is there a difference between contemplation and mysticism? Yeah, I think so. Contemplation is the structured and disciplined way to get to mysticism, to a mystical experience, to an experience of pure presence. It's the way to, and so they work hand in hand. Maybe this will help. Here's Richard Rohr. He writes, many Christians are scared of the word mysticism. Now, I'm telling you, at all the other churches I'd been to before we started The Effect, if you said mysticism, bad things would happen. Because it was conflated, it was connected to just the occult and occult practice. It really has nothing to do with that. Hear hear how Rohr defines it, because I think he does a great job. He says, many Christians are scared of the word mysticism, but a mystic is 
simply one who has moved from mere belief or belonging systems to actual inner experience of God. Let me read that again. A mystic is simply one who has moved from mere belief or belonging systems to actual experience of God. Now think about that for a second. What is belief? Belief is just a mental assent. It's just an agreement that you make in your mind to believe something that you've been told. It is only mind deep. It doesn't go any deeper. Why does Paul say all these things that I believe that I know to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do? How many times have we all experienced that? It's because the mind is not driving the bus. Your unconscious is driving the bus. The things down deep that you can't see is what really creates the thought and behavior patterns in our lives. And so if your belief, your way of following Jesus is just about mental assent, just about mental agreement, you're not going to get very far. You're certainly not going to experience God the way Jesus is talking about this. And what are belonging systems? Well, look around the room. This is a belonging system. A church is a belonging system. A 12-step group is a belonging system. You know, a job is a belonging system. A family is a belonging system. These are communities and groups of people that we create, and they're beautiful, and we need them. And so if we are a good member of our belonging system, our group, and we follow all the rules and all the etiquette, and we do everything we're supposed to do, and then we think, oh, well, now I've done everything I'm supposed to do for God. Now God's going to do for me. See, we need to graduate the mere belief. We need to graduate just the obedience to the belonging system if we really want to have the experience of God that Jesus is talking about. In the early 1960s, Karl Rahner, a German Jesuit, a Catholic priest, who strongly influenced the Second Vatican Council, stated this, If Western Christianity does not discover its mystical foundations and roots, we might as well close the church doors pretty strong statement. And that was back in the mid-60s. I believe he was right. This is Rohr. Without a contemplative mind, Christianity can't offer a broad seeing, real alternative consciousness, or a new kind of humanity. Jesus was the first clear non-dual mystic in the West, in my opinion. We just were not prepared for his way of knowing and loving. And I did want to add that I believe Jesus is the first clear, non-dual mystic imported to the West. But he was an Eastern man, speaking an Eastern language to an Eastern audience. That's why it's so hard for us in the West to really get what he's saying, because we're trying to apply, to lay on Jesus all our Western thought and rationale and arguments and logic. That doesn't compute with Jesus. But he is our beacon in the West into this mystical experience with God. Alan Watts, a British philosopher, put it this way, from the beginning, institutional Christianity has hardly contemplated the possibility that the consciousness of Jesus might be the consciousness of the Christian, that the whole point of the gospel is that everyone may experience union with God in the same way as Jesus himself. Now, I don't know if that sounds heretical to you, but he's not saying that we will be the same as Jesus. But what he is saying is that we can experience what Jesus experienced as a human being on this earth. What are we doing if we're not doing that? What did Jesus mean when he said, if you follow this way of mine that 
you will do the things that I do, the things you see me do, and greater things than these. He's talking about experiencing what he experienced. Yes, that's what we're supposed to be about. Watts also wrote, the truth that religion, to be of any use, must be mystical, right? Must be pure about pure presence, direct experience has always been denied by the seemingly large numbers of people, including theologians, who do not know what mysticism is. Its essence is the consciousness of union with God. Basically, to experience non-separateness or non-duality from anything, particularly with God, one must move to the mystical mind. Any other mind or heart is utterly inadequate to the task. Until people have had some mystical inner experience, inner spiritual experience, there is no point in asking them to follow the ethical ideas of Jesus or to really understand religious beliefs beyond the level of mere formula. At most, such moral ideals and doctrinal affirmations are only a source of deeper anxiety because we don't have the power to follow any of Jesus' major teachings about forgiveness, love of enemies, nonviolence, humble use of power, a simple lifestyle, and so on, except in and through radical union with God. In other words, the big things that Jesus taught require us to have let go enough to be completely connected with God. And then the ethical things that we focus on usually are just going to flow from us. We don't have to obey the law anymore. We have become the law in that sense. We try to do it back to front just doesn't work. All we become is good people within our belonging system with beliefs that comport to the belonging system, but without the kind of experience that will allow us to be satisfied with our lives. Further, he writes, doctrines like the Trinity, the real presence, and the significance of the indwelling of the Spirit have little active power. They're just believed mentally at the rational level, but never experienced. What we've been saying here. Belief, mental assent, is not faith in the way faith is used biblically. Because it's an illusion of certainty. We think we believe the right thing. We believe with certainty that it's true and everybody else is wrong. But faith is really the ability to act in the presence of uncertainty, to act in the presence of doubt. And it's the only way to have an experience of God who remains forever mystery to us as human beings, how is he ever going to be anything else but mystery? An unknown, unseen. Faith allows us to know God, but not with the mind. It's like music. Remember Rumi in the poem last week? He said, when you wake up empty and afraid, don't go back to the study. Don't go back to your books. Don't try to further lock down what you're certain of. He says, take down a musical instrument. Why is that? Because music only exists for as long as it's vibrating in the air. It's always now. It's always real time. As soon as the string stops vibrating, as soon as you stop breathing into the tube, there is no more music. It must be now and always now. And it attaches us from a different part of our brain, not through the intellect, but it comes to us up through the deeper regions. This experience is like music more than anything else. It only exists as long 
as we are in the moment with God. Ultimately, the map is not the territory. Heard that one before? The map is not the territory. We're talking about the difference between reading a travel brochure and actually going on vacation. And maybe even more than that, it's the difference between going on vacation and actually living somewhere for a significant amount of time. This is the difference that we're all about here. The difference between believing and understanding and actually experiencing and living something out. If you just read the Bible, if you just go to church and obey doctrine, you're not going to get the actual presence of God. Now, you can do both at the same time, of course. You can have mystical experience reading the Bible, going to church, even obeying the rules and the law. But are you? That's the question. How do you know? You know by the, tr- the fruit. You know by the satisfaction. Is your faith bringing you to a place of satisfaction? Or are you still primarily defined by what is missing and not what is already here? So how do we begin? How do we begin to do what Jesus is trying to get us to do? Well, there are both formal and informal ways to do this. What I want to talk about today is an informal way. But the formal ways are going to be structured spiritual formation. And it's going to include meditation, centering prayer. It's going to include mindfulness. It's going to include ritual and practice and sacraments and all those things. That's a formal way. And it's beautiful. And it can be done in community, which makes it even stronger. But there are informal ways as well. And this has got to bring to mind Brother Lawrence. And I hope you're all familiar with Brother Lawrence by now. I talk about him all the time. He's my hero. But if you're not, Brother Lawrence was a 16th century French monk who, when he entered the, con- in the convent, well, there were convents for men. There were convents for men back then. They called them convents. When he entered the abbey, he had expectations and imaginings about the life of the monk. But since he was uneducated, they didn't know what to do with him, so they stuck him in the kitchen, and he resented that. He didn't want to be in the kitchen. He wanted to be doing monk things, whatever those things were that he imagined that he'd be doing, right? Years went by, and he started to realize that God was just in, as present in the kitchen with all the smoke and people shouting at the same time for things and all that went on in the, in the craziness of trying to feed all these men as he was in front of the Blessed Sacrament in the chapel. And he got to the point that he realized God was more present to him in the kitchen where he was doing something of service for his brothers than anywhere else. And then he got to the point that he quit all formal forms of spiritual formation, except the ones that he was obligated to by the rule of his house, because he didn't need them anymore. He became one of those desert critters that got all its water from the food that it eats, didn't have to drink anymore. That's who he became. He talked about, we think that we have to invent all these ways of coming at God, but it's not so. Just do the things that you do all day long, but do them for the love of God. Do them with the awareness of God's presence in the midst. He says, I can pick up a straw off the ground, and it's a sacred act, because I do it for the love of God. These are the informal ways that we can become connected. We can have the mystical experience, the contemplative experience that we're talking about. Just do what we do all day long, but with awareness of the connection that is inherent in the task, in the relationships 
the context of which we're working. Ultimately, it's both and, right? We're going to be doing formal and informal. But we can start informally if that's one way for you. If before you can actually carve out time maybe study enough to know what you're doing in terms of meditation or centering prayer or some of these formal activities, you can start right here and right now with just the four S's that we've talked about. Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. Precious little of that these days, don't you think? but begin to introduce them into your daily life, however you can. Now, everybody's circumstances are going to vary you know, vastly here. If you're a parent with small children, silence and solitude, not so much at home, right? If you have a very demanding job, stillness, not going to be easy to achieve. If you have even multi-generations in your house, and you're dealing with them. Maybe you're sandwiched in between the young ones and the older ones. You know, that's difficult. On the other hand, maybe you're retired. Maybe your time is more your own. Everyone's going to have a different set of pros and cons in terms of trying to introduce the four S's into his or her life. But whatever it is, whatever your circumstances are, we can all do something even if the quiet time is not possible at home, per se, we can start with our electronics. Start with the electronics, for crying out loud. The electronics are the biggest source of everything that is anti-4S's that you can possibly think of. Think about our electronics and what they do. Can we turn them down? Can we turn them off? The single largest creators of noise, <laughs> anxiety, and complexity are our electronics, personal electronics, television, everything. Obviously, the internet, social media. Think of it all. Think of how it impacts your life. Think of how you use it all day long. Do you leave the TV on all day to have background noise? As soon as you get into the car, is the radio on? Can you turn it off? Can you allow some silence to creep in? Now, obviously, if you start getting the shakes, then you're going to have to turn it back on again. But see how long you can go. And as soon as you get your fix, turn it back off again. See how long you can go. Start somewhere. Because God is a gentleman or a gentlewoman. He's not going to insert himself, break down the door, break down the noise to get to your spirit. It's up to us to quiet down, to open up. In order for the spirit that is already there to become visible to us, can we start to introduce silence? Can we find spaces for solitude? Maybe it is early in the morning, if you get up a little bit earlier and you can find some silence and some solitude. Maybe it's just in your car. Maybe your car becomes that capsule. Who knows? Let me read you just one last bit. And I thought this was also pretty brilliant. It's called the phone booth for the mind. Phone booths may be obsolete. First of all, everyone in here knows what a phone booth is. Okay, just checking, just checking. Yes, some of our, oh, do you know what a phone booth is? Okay, she knows what a phone booth Have you ever used a phone booth? <laughs> See, this is what I'm talking about. Phone booths may be obsolete, but they still offer a good model for keeping our phones from taking over our lives. 
A crowd gathered in Times Square recently for the removal of what the city promoted as New York's last public payphone. The end of an era, declared the news release headline. Even though the era when payphones played any meaningful role in New Yorkers' lives certainly ended long ago. One might be forgiven for feeling a bit nostalgic. Payphones are vestiges of the analog world. Before the I'll be 15 minutes late text, <laughs> when long distance was a consideration. Remember that? You had to think about your long distance call. You had to plan for it. And people on calls in public got their own private booths. People miss a period of time when a call meant something. Mark Thomas of the Payphone Project told the Times, when you planned it, when you thought about it, and you took a deep breath and you put your quarter in. Can you remember that? I've been considering the familiar refrain about smartphones, that they've made our lives easier to navigate at the expense of our manners, our attention, our safety while driving. We may be physically present, but we're never really there. Payphones were stationary monotaskers. How about that? Payphones were stationary monotaskers. Before cell phones, if you wanted to talk to someone, you did it at home or at work or in a booth. Your telecommunications were contained to these discrete spaces, separate from the rest of your life. Payphones may be nearly obsolete, but there's nothing stopping us from reinstituting some of their boundaries in a post-payphone world. What might this look for you? For me, it would mean pulling over to the side of the road to send a text rather than dictating my message to Siri. I'd step out of the pedestrian flow and into the phone booth of the mind to listen to voicemail. I wouldn't check social media while waiting for a friend to arrive at a bar. Long phone calls would take place at home, not while I'm on a walk or sitting on a park bench, ostensibly enjoying the outdoors. And certainly not at the checkout stand at Albertsons while you're asking Marion to check you out and you're on the phone. Don't do that. My sentimental idea of the phone booth, Richard Dreyfus calling Marcia Mason from outside her apartment in the rain at the end of the Goodbye Girl. Anybody remember that movie? It's a time capsule, a romantic vision of the past. But the phone booth as metaphor as inspiration for creating boundaries between virtual and real life still seems useful today. Can we do that? Can we create safe zones for ourselves, wherever we can? Phone booth sanctuaries, so to speak, in our car. That's an obvious place. If you're driving alone, if you commute to work, or you just go into the store, you can create a little phone booth in that space. Maybe it is early mornings. Maybe it's at the gym. Maybe it's during your workout. It's when you run or take a walk. And maybe it's at church here that we create those safe zones where nothing else is going to intrude. We're going to be monotaskers. Maybe not stationary, but we're going to be monotaskers. At this time, we're going to do one thing and one thing only. We're going to put the phone on airport mode, or we're going to do whatever, and we're just going to have this conversation. Maybe restaurants are another good place. Just have the meal. Have the conversation. Put the phone away. Don't even think about it. It'll all be waiting there for you when you get out. 
And really, is there that many things in your life that 45 minutes is going to just blow the whole deal? And maybe we need to rethink those kind of deals anyway. But can we create these safe zones? Can we use these phone booths of our minds to begin to experience the practice of silence and solitude? Let it start to grow the stillness in us from the inside out. Because the more time you spend in silence and solitude, the stiller and stiller your spirit becomes. And the stress and the anxiety that comes from the outside is something that you can deal with more effectively because you've spent time in the silence and the solitude. Can we simplify our lives wherever we can? Can we start to buy less? Can we start to purge more? Do we really need all this stuff? Can we start to become immune to ads and commercials? <laughs> Can we become immune to what the Joneses have, what the neighbors have, to all these constant flood of perceived needs and wants and desires and status symbols? Can we just let those go more and more? Can we start to just clear out our space? so that we can begin to see how much less we really need in life and then discover how much less we really want in life. Can we start to see the beauty in the smallest of things that we normally would leapfrog over to look for the next spectacular entry or event in life? Can we start to see our moments as enough right here, right now, not constantly being badgered by something that would make this moment better, what it should be. Can we start to become satisfied? Now, anything that we do along these lines to begin, anything that you can take a look at your life and start to say, hey, I can start to get a little bit of a toehold right here. I can start to introduce that. Is going to be heightening our awareness of how unaware we really are. How we typically just bounce from noise to noise, from thought to thought, from need to need, without any space in between. You know? It's just like a pinball machine, just bouncing, bouncing, bouncing through all of these things. You know what a form of torture has typically been? for prisoners of war, you put them in a cell and you blast them with light and you blast them with loud noise, music or whatever, just constantly banging, constantly lit. After a while, you just lose your mind. But think about it. Isn't that a description of our world? Aren't we constantly being bombarded with light and sound every day from wherever you go? Just go pump gas you got a screen there trying to sell you something, telling you news. I mean, you can't go anywhere without everything constantly bombarded. That is technology. That is our lives. It's literally a torture chamber, and we don't realize it. We're literally the frogs in the cold water that's getting heated up. We don't see what's actually going on. But to begin anywhere by starting to go the other way to introduce silence and solitude and stillness and simplicity in your life is to become more and more aware of these constant statements of fear in the news, suggestions of need in the advertising that are always stoking our dissatisfaction with life. Life is terrible. Life is horrible. Life is wrong. The country is wrong. All of that. 
to become more aware of those processes and how they're working in our lives, how they work and affect you personally as you step away, is to bring your awareness up where it needs to be if we're going to start to really engage Jesus' way toward this mystical encounter with God. Now, it's going to hurt at first. You're not going to like it. You're going to have to go through detox. I guarantee you, you know. Have you ever just forgotten your cell phone at home? How do you feel about that? I forgot my cell phone. I don't know what to do. I can't call anybody. We never had a cell phone before. <laughs> of course, now you can't drive and find a phone booth either, but that's another story. It'll hurt at first. You're going to need to de- de- detox because the addiction that we've already established in ourselves is really strong. But we can practice it and we can persevere. And then there's going to come a moment like this wonderful opening scene in the movie Gladiator where uh, the gladiator, the general, is about to start a major battle in Germania. And the, every, all the lines are set up, everything's ready to go, and he's standing there in his armor. And all of a sudden he looks off frame and he cut to this just little bird, a sparrow or something, just in the bush, you know, flapping its wings and just and then cut back to him and you just see him see this bird and the smile slowly creeps over his face. The bird flies away, he watches it go, and then his vision comes back to the battle lines and his face hardens again. That tells you everything you need to know about his character. He was a farmer before he was a general. He had spent all that time in silence and solitude amid his fields and his crops. He had the appreciation for nature and the smallest of things, and it hasn't left him. And even as he's preparing for this huge battle and all the anxiety and everything that is riding on it, he can still take time to see that bird and be moved by it. And in that moment, that snapshot, life is enough. Life is transformed. Can we do that in the midst of our lives? All the anxiety, all the stress, all the things that we're trying to do that we know we need to do that are still left undone. Can we find these moments of enoughness, enoughness, satisfaction in the midst of all of those? Can we do that? Yeah, we can if we practice. And then if we keep practicing and we string enough of those moments together then we realize that we've hit that tipping point, 51%, whatever it is, and suddenly we realize that more often than not, we are satisfied with our moments, and our lives have taken on the character of a satisfied person who can accept life and live with a sense of hope and gratitude, and we know that we're on the way of Jesus. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to do. Follow my way, he said. I am that way. We need to make sure we're not just following Jesus mentally or behaviorally, but we're really getting down into the experience of what life has to offer with God as the author and the center of all being. Knowing God of our understanding is enough to know that all will be well. That's what makes us satisfied. That's the perfect love that casts out the fear. And despite all that remains unfinished, we start to realize there will always be something unfinished. But we can still be satisfied right here.
right now. Jesus is praying for that for us. Let's pray. Father, it's safe to say that we're all pretty stressed, that we're all facing anxiety, that we're all facing daunting tasks in life. And it's probably safe to say that it's going to get worse before it gets better in the near future. We want to be a people that can endure the things that we can't overcome. We want to be aware of the limit experiences that we encounter so that they can grow us into a people that is closer and closer to you, closer and closer to truth. We want to know you, Father. We don't want to just know about you or understand you. We want to graduate mere obedience into full union so that everything flows from us as if it were flowing from you and your love. Help us to get creative, to find little ways, even small ways, that we can start to introduce the silence and the solitude and the stillness and the simplicity that will be the counterbalance, the ballast of a noisy life and a world so that we can begin to see you in the midst of everything, even the noise. And Father, in advance, we thank you again for your constancy and your presence. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.